Hi, this is Chris Finch. I'm lead pastor of City Walk Church. I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you don't already know, the best way to stay connected with City Walk Church is with our app. Just go to your device's app store and search City Walk Church to find it. Whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus or you're just investigating faith, our hope is that this message will help you take your next step in that journey. If you're in the area, we would love to have you come join us in person. For more information or to plan your visit, check us out at citywalkchurch.com or on social media at WeAreCityWalkCA. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all, or kind of see you all. I think I see some silhouettes out there and everybody's saying, so thank you for talking back. It means there's uh, more people than I can see out there. Thank you for being here. I want to just say a special shout out uh, to anybody joining us online. Thank you for joining us, and especially people in here. Uh, thank you for joining us as well. My name is Josh. Uh, maybe some of you don't know that. I'm the next generation pastor here at City Walk Church. What that means is I, uh, I oversee anybody from uh, babies all the way up to our high schoolers. Uh, so I kind of head up those ministries and then make sure people are there. And alongside a group of wonderful, wonderful bridge builders and volunteers that come and join us every week. So they're over there right now uh, killing it. And I'm so, I'm so thankful to be able to serve with them. <clears throat> and I mentioned before, uh, as, a, as a next generation pastor, I do have four kids of my own. And uh, so most of you know that. But again, you may not know I'm a dad to four wonderful kids. And uh, I've been a father for almost 14 years now. Now, some of you in the room are like, child's play, okay? Yeah, I know, I know. I know some people got me beat, uh, but there are also people who are out there who may not be parents yet or are esteemed to be parents. And so, not that I'm trying to educate you or anything like that, but here's one thing that I have noticed about kids in my 14 years of uh, experience, right? The, the, the one thing that I, I know is to be true is they complicate everything. They complicate everything. Uh, if you haven't noticed that, uh, that, that when the kids get involved, it's like, I don't understand how you got there. I don't understand how such a simple task uh, could be overcomplicated. Now, I didn't make an exhaustive list, but I did make a list of three things that in my household, and my family, are the most commonly complicated things when it comes to my family and my kids. Maybe some of you parents can relate, and I hope that doesn't trigger anybody. It's not supposed to. It's just supposed to be funny. But the first thing is getting dressed. Getting dressed. As adults, when we get dressed for the morning, we think of a few things. Does this look nice? Is it weather appropriate? Right? Is it, is it, am I dressed for work? Am I dressed to go out? Um, when, uh, before we moved here, my family and I moved here, we lived in uh, upstate New York. And uh, if you have, don't know anything about the upstate New York and the Adirondacks, it snows there like seven months of the year. It's really cold all the time. And uh, at the other five months of the year, it's actually pretty chilly. So most of the time, uh, you need something like a sweater. Well, I was constantly convincing my son, his name's Logan, you've seen him around, um, he needs a sweater. It would be 15 degrees outside, and they'd be like, hey man, you could probably should put a sweater on. He'd have you know, a t-shirt and a pair of sweatpants. And he's like, no, dad, I'm good. Because when I go inside, uh, it's hot. And I'm like, yeah, I get that, but only God can heat the outside. And he hasn't seen fit to do that today. I'm going to need you to throw on a sweater. Then, then we move from New York all the way over to California where, now this is an anomaly because like today it's wonderful, but normally it's pretty hot, right? Normally like right now it's in the upper 90s or maybe even triple digits. And, and now I'm having the opposite conversation with my son. I'm like, hey dude, man, you probably don't need a sweat, sweatpants and a sweater. It's pretty warm outside. No, nah, dad, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Right? Getting dressed can be way overcomplicated, way overcomplicated. Convincing kids that clothes don't match. You ever had that little conversation? Hey, how, where did you get that? That's a dress and a pair of pants. You're wearing it like a scarf. I don't understand how this all works. And then here's the PA stay resistance. Ready? Where are your shoes? Where are your shoes? And they'll, they'll come to me and I'll be like, where are your shoes? And they'll be like, I don't know. And I'm like, when's the last time you saw them? And they'll say, when I wore them yesterday. Like, I, I just don't understand how do you complicate shoes. Anyways, second thing, dinner time. Dinner time. Any kind of meal time, I just pick dinner time because that's the most commonly time when or common time that everybody gets together. But kids' eating habits are insane. Insane, right? So you go sit down, and uh, if you served candy and Starburst and Skittles mixed with some chocolate ice cream, they'd eat it till their stomach exploded. However, however, as good parents, we all want to have balanced meals. And even before I became a parent, I remember... I would say, like, oh, I'm not going to feed my kids sweets. You know, you're, you're like that prideful parent. You know, my kids are going to have a well-rounded palate. Yes, they will. No, they won't. 
No, they won't. I'm going to spoil. I'm going to burst the bubble. They won't. I was so naive and maybe just a little stupid when it came to uh, kids' eating habits. And so what happens is I sit down, and really, you know, my wife or myself, whoever cooks a good meal, they sit down, and, and all they have to do is eat it. It's so easy. Just put it in your mouth. That's all I'm asking you to do. Like, don't overcomplicate this. Just eat it. And, uh, and so it's, we sit down, and, and they, they don't say this, but their face looks like, what is this poison you've put in front of me? Like, what is this? This is so gross. And uh, so, of course, as a good dad, I start with, they ask the question, you probably already know, how much of this do I have to eat? And I start as a good dad, all of it. Eat all of it. And then after about five minutes, it's okay, just eat eight bites. Just take eight bites, right? However old you are is how many bites you have to take, okay? So just take eight bites or 10 bites or 14 bites. I don't care if you're a 14-year-old. You have to take that many bites. And then after like 10, 12 minutes, uh, it gets down to five bites. And then by the end of the meal, I'm just like, just stick your tongue out. I'll rub the broccoli on it. Just go. Just go. I don't, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Just all I'm asking you to do is eat, right? Dinner time. And the final thing, the final thing is bedtime. It's bedtime. So a couple weeks ago, Julie and I, my wife Julie, uh, we celebrated our 17th anniversary. It was great. Uh, 17th, yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, again, some of you are like, that's child's play. I get it. That's a big deal to us, right? 17 years. And I, I was thinking back to the time before we had kids. And bedtime was so great, right? Like, I'd be like, honey, are you ready for bed? And she'd be like, and I'd go, you want to go to bed? And she's like, yeah. I was like, cool, let's go to bed. That was it. That was the whole process. That was it. Like, I was like, man, this is awesome. That was the whole process. Now, it's like, hey, who's ready for bed? Why aren't you brushing your teeth? Why are you crying? Who didn't flush the toilet? You didn't brush your teeth. The toothbrush is not even wet. And I remember my wife and I, we'd lay there, and this is what we'd say. Like, we'd, we'd look at each other, and we'd be like, good night, honey. And I'd be like, good night, sweetheart. I love you sleep good and how prideful I was I was like you know what I'm gonna sleep good before I had kids I was like I was so prideful I'm like yeah I'm gonna sleep good it's gonna be great instead of now it's like it's not like hey honey sleep good it's hey honey good luck because somebody's probably gonna be up right kids overcomplicate they overcomplicate everything kids overcomplicate everything and to be honest with you they overcomplicate things as a but us as adults, we really don't, we really don't overcomplicate anymore, right? And if, if you were honest with yourself, if you were honest with yourself, you hopefully don't overcomplicate dinner time or bedtime or getting dressed in the morning. But as adults, we overcomplicate other things, like relationships, like our time with God, like our sin. And we don't overcomplicate the easy things in life, but as you get older, things get a little more difficult. Things get a little more complex. And for all of us, what happens is, is we turn into this person where it's now, instead of overcomplicating things, we look at our kids and go, why are you overcomplicating this? And it's like God looking at us going, why are you overcomplicating this? And in 1 John chapter 3, today, we're going to be talking about some, some different things. We're going to be talking about some things that really, in a sense, should not be overcomplicated. They shouldn't, be that, they shouldn't be that hard. Really, the idea is, in this chapter, is we love God, God loves us, and we love people. Right? It seems so simple. But if we were to break that down, if we were to kind of begin to flush that out in our life, we'd probably have 100 questions. How much do I love? How much does God love me? Well, if he loves me this, does he love me here? And, and sometimes we just... We overcomplicate it. So what I want to do is I'm, we're going to walk through this chapter, and we're going to just try and simplify life. We're going to try and simplify these relationships. I'm going to do my best to be able to do the same thing that John, I believe, is, is trying to do here, and it's to simplify our life. The Apostle John is talking to all of us like a father would talk to his kids. Multiple times in the book, John refers to the readers as dear little children. And in that context... And in that context, that's how I want us to read this chapter. Like a dad trying to simplify life for his kids is John trying to simplify our relationships with God and with each other. So we're going to jump in and we're going to start in, uh, in verse 1. It says this, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. 
The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. I love how John opens this, book, opens this chapter. See, in chapter 2, Matt did a great job of, uh, last week kind of laying out chapter 2 for us. But in chapter 2, John starts a statement about sinning and about how much we sin. And then in chapter 3, he takes a little break. Because in chapter 3, these two thoughts, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, actually coincide but in the very first verse of chapter 3, he takes a break in between kind of exhorting people. And he wants to just make sure that we all understand one thing. He says, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And I want to just, I want to just take this. This is an exclamation point. This is a statement. This is not a question. This is not a maybe. This is not. This is, and we are. John is taking a moment to say, listen, I want you to stop and simplify all of this. And here's what he says. Notice the love of God. See what great love the Father has for us. What, he, what, is he, what does he love us for? That we can be called his kids. I love this because he just wants to define this. And we are. This idea of love, I think, is overused in our day-to-day -day life. If you watch enough TV, there's a lot of different loves thrown out there and things like that. It's kind of overused. Some people would use the same word uh, that they love their favorite pizza place, and then they go and, you know, kiss their husband or their wife or their kids, and they say, I love you. And it's like, do you really mean that? Because you just said you love the pepperoni pizza from Jersey Mike's, or not Jersey Mike's, from uh, Big Mike's Pizza. Like, is it the same thing? And I think we overuse that. This word love is actually much different. See, the Bible was not actually written in English originally. Some of you know this, some of you may not. The Bible wasn't written in English. It was actually written in Hebrew in the Old Testament. It was written in Aramaic and it was written in Greek. So when we translated it into English, the English language isn't very descriptive. So when it says this word love, we all know that, like if I say I love you to my kids, it's not the same as, this, man, I love having blank of you know food or something like that or this tv show we know it's not the same but that word is pretty much the same thing in the english language so i wanted to break down a few of the words in greek because i think it's important that we understand what this love that god has for us really looks like now there's eight different words for love in greek we're not going to go through all eight we're going to go through the common most commonly used here in the scripture so the first word here is the word is the word phileo Phileo. It's actually the root word for what we see in the East Coast is the city of Philadelphia, right? And the city of Philadelphia is commonly known as the city of brotherly love. That's right, the city of brotherly love. And if you're a sports fan, you know that that's not true, but hey, they, they claim it and that's fun. That's fun for them. But it's a city of brotherly love. And that's exactly what it means. In Greek, that's how like, friends can kind of go and say, I love you and I love you back. It's not a weird thing. It's not like I want to marry them. All it is, is is, hey, it's this idea of phileo, this idea of brotherly love, this idea of I'm close to you, you're one of my best friends, and I love you. So that word phileo is one of the words there. The second word is eros, eros. This word, we get our English word for the word erotic. This is a very lust-filled love. It's a very lust-filled love. And in fact, when you watch TV and you see all these reality shows and, and they say they love them, oh, I love you, I love you. Most of the time, if we, were in, if we were in ancient Greece, this is the word they'd be using. This is the word. It's, it's, it's not an emotional, it's a physical type of love. It's, man, I am attracted to you. And it's really more of a sexual attraction. The third word is more as a storge, storge. And it's this word, it actually doesn't exist in the English language, but this is the type of love that a family would have as they express love to each other. So you go to a big family reunion and, and, uh, and you, you see all your aunts and uncles and your cousins and your second cousins and, and all those things. This is the type, kind of love that a family would show each other. And the fourth one, this is the word love that we find right here in this, in this chapter. And it's the word agape. The word agape. 
This word is literally described as a God-like love, as a Christ-like love. And the best way I can explain it to you is the way Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you probably have something from Hobby Lobby with this on your wall, right? Everybody knows this. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4, and it says this. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's a big one. Life find, uh, love, excuse me, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Do you understand now why John was like, hey, notice this kind of love. Notice how it's not, we're not talking about some random person. We're not talking about this emotional feeling. We're talking about something that is so big, so incredible, that it doesn't keep any record of your wrongs. It's so big and so incredible that it's never angry with you, that it will never end. And this is the type of love, this agape love that God has for us. And you can understand now why John was saying, recognize it, understand it, cherish it, behold it, think about it, rejoice with it, sing about it, because it's so vast and so important. It never ends, it never gives up. It is so bold, it is so bold that it calls us family now. God made us a part of his family Have you ever thought about the idea that God didn't have to do that? God did not have to make us family. God could have just made us servants. Could have said, yeah, hey, man, I want a relationship with you. Come on in. You can kind of hang out over here. He could have made us servants. He didn't have to make us family. He didn't have to make us kids. But John wanted us to understand we're kids we're kids of the Most High God. And you know what? When, when it comes to kids of the Most High God, just like maybe if you have kids or you have little nieces and nephews and things like that, there's a different relationship with them, and they have access in a different way. My kids have access to me all the time. They would never do this, just so I hear. But if my little daughter Olivia came out here, she would see nothing wrong with coming out here while I'm doing this right now and be like, hey, Dad, can I ask you a quick question? She would see nothing wrong with that. Why? Because I'm her dad. And she has access to me all the time. She knocks, come on in. It's it's, it's a different kind of relationship. And that's the idea with kids. We have an intimacy with God because we're his kids. Friends, listen, I know that politics can get messy, and I'm not here to talk about that. But the office of the president is still important. Whether you agree with the politics of the person in the office, the office of president is still important. Do you know that if I wanted to talk to the sitting president of the United States, it would probably take weeks. It would take weeks, maybe months, if I could even talk to him in the first place. I'd have to pull every string to get in the presence of one of the most important people on the planet. But friends, I'm a child of the most high God, so guess what? I can have an audience with the God who created the world anytime I want. Anytime I want. And that's what we rejoice over. The God who, when he speaks, the stars appear. The God who, when he speaks, the Bible says, holds the oceans in his hands. You have access to that God anytime you want. Because you're his kids. Don't forget that. Don't forget. Don't forget that this idea of God is, is not something that you read or hear about. It's something that you can experience. If you're new to church or maybe you're, you're joining us online and this is the first time joining us online or you haven't been to church in a little while, the view of God can be misrepresented in culture. I've never seen a great TV show represent God in a way that I think the Bible represents God. In movies and TVs, other outlets, social media, he's brought up as a judgmental, kind of overbearing taskmaster who can't wait to catch you doing something wrong so he can judge you. He's given an an impossible list of rules in this book people call the Bible, and he judges you because you can't keep them all. 
John, in the opening verses of this chapter, corrects that. He wants us to remember that true love doesn't try and catch people. True love just forgives. And that's the love that God has for you. It's this immense, great love that he lavishes on his children. Friends, the Bible is not a book of lists and rules. The Bible is a love letter. And maybe that makes some of y'all feel uncomfortable. In fact, I know, um, you know, when we, when we talk about us being kids, if you've ever been around, um, I, I, have a, I was in New York City and, and a friends of mine and we were at this Jewish community and it was so interesting because you hear little kids running around um, and they're saying, Abba, Abba. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this idea that we have a relationship with God where we call him Abba. And it's, it's the Jewish word for daddy. And these little kids are just running around looking for their dad. Look at, like when, when my kids come to see me, they don't go, hello, father. <laughs> no, I'm their dad. In fact, that'd be weird. Right? I, I, no, my, my little girls come up to me and say, daddy, I need something. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm not trying to think that when you pray, you have to call daddy, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you want to, that's fine, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's an intimacy here that the, the scriptures talk about that you really can't find anywhere else in this agape love. Friends, you cannot find anywhere else other than God. You can't. You can't find it anywhere else in the world other than God. Because it's not just it's not just a, 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 a verb. This love is not just a verb. It's a noun. It's a person. It's who he is. And he gets to call us his kids. God really does care about us. He really does love us. And like I said, in, in chapter 2, he decides to talk, begin talking about this idea of how to spot false teachers. And as he gets into this, as he gets out of this idea of this love that he talks about, of this hope that he talks about. He continues his thought from chapter two and he begins the same, same thought in chapter three. See, in the church, there's a growing number of false teachers that were beginning to penetrate the church, the early church, and, and come in and start teaching different things. And so as we read this, remember, it's a father talking to his kids, trying to simplify life. So we're going to look at verse 4. It says this, Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he may take away sins, and there is no sin in him. So remember, John is starting to talk about these, this idea of false teachers. And these, these false teachers had come into the church, and their name was the successionists. The successionists. Now, the successionists are actually not a original or not, they didn't stop there. In fact, the secessionists are part of overthrowing um, Britain when they came here uh, to, to America and they you know, started the revolution, all those kind of things. This idea of secessionists is just a group of people who come in and they decide that they're going to start telling a different truth that sounds like the truth, but it's a little bit different. And that's what was happening in this day. John was a pastor, and as he's writing this, this letter to his congregations, he was saying, hey, listen, I've heard that there's some people in the congregation that are teaching this. And he begins to, one by one, start telling them that is not true. That is not true. The first thing they were teaching was, was that Jesus was not God. That Jesus was not God and that he could not take away your sins. And if you're new to church and if you're, if you're maybe you're like, whoa, is that true? It's not. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, John reads it. He says in verse 5, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Friends, the church has been around for 2,000 years, and there is a few truths that come out of this book that we can never waver on, that we can never have a different opinion on. This is one of them. This is one of the foundational ideas of what we believe, and it's this. Jesus came to take away sins, and he was sinless himself. Jesus came to take away sins, and he was sinless himself. False teachers are claiming that Jesus was not the Messiah. That his death 
It was just another death. They were teaching his morality, but not his deity. Does that make sense? They were teaching his morality, but not his deity. And if that's not the picture of what we deal with every day today, I don't know what is. This idea that Jesus was a good man. He was a good person. He talked about loving your neighbor. He talked about being kind to people. And you know what? Most people can get behind that. In fact, most of the other religious teachers based some of their teaching off of what Jesus taught because it was moral truth. But really, where the rubber meets the road is not whether you think that loving everybody is good. It's whether or not you can make Jesus Lord of your life. Whether or not he's the king. Whether or not he actually is God. Because if he's not God, then he didn't have the power to take away sins. But he did. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, verse 10... It says this, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. I highlighted this because I want you guys to see this. He died to sin once for all time. Back in the Old Testament, people would have to, families would have to bring sacrifices on a regular basis. On a regular basis because the sacrifice they were bringing was not sufficient for them to cover sins for their whole life. So they would have to come constantly and they would have to take a perfect spotless lamb and they would cut the throat of the lamb and the father would hold his hand on the head of the lamb. And as the blood came out of the lamb, that would be the the atonement for the sin of the family. But see, the thing is, is they had to keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that because this lamb was not God. So what Paul is trying to help us understand in Romans chapter 6 is he died once for all time. Why can he do that? How can he do that? Because He's God. We don't come up here and ask anybody to sacrifice anything because your sins are forgiven. When you accept Jesus, that atonement that Jesus died and he shed his blood for us, that atonement is good for anybody, anywhere, anytime. And if anybody tells you any different, that's a false teaching. It's not what the Bible talks about. He died once for all. And if you want that, if you, if you have never experienced that idea of salvation, the God who loves you, the God that we were talking about earlier, that, that agape love wants to impart that love to you. As we keep reading in verse 6, John gets into some, he gets into some interesting things here. So I want to tread lightly, but I, I want to I share with you some thoughts about this because I don't want to confuse anybody and this is, this is a little bit of theology, but I want to make it simple because that's what I believe John is saying. So here we go. Verse 6. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is righteous, right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Verse 8. Then one who commits sin is of the devil. Excuse me. The one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning, and the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin, because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the ones who do not love his brother or sister. The next encouragement John gives us in this passage, I believe, if I could simplify it, is to watch people's lives. See, remember what I said earlier. These people, John was trying to go line by line. He was trying to tell people, hey, what these successionists are saying is not true. And what they were doing was they were waxing eloquent. They were just talking, 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 talking. But they didn't believe that if you were born of God, you had to change how you live. You didn't believe that as you were saved, that the, the power of God came into your life, and that you had to change how you live. And friends, listen, if Jesus is God, he has the power to break the chains of sin in our life. Anybody can talk. Anybody can say anything. And in verse 7, he says this, little children... Let no one deceive you. 
Don't be fooled. He says this, the one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. Watch what people do. How do we know? How do we know if someone believes and is a follower of Jesus? Friends, John tells us, watch their life. And, and I want to take a pause here because I don't, want you to, I don't want you to think this, that we watch their life in some judgmental fashion. Oh, they messed up. Click, they're out. And, and in social media, the age of social media, don't watch their highlight reel. Watch their life. Which means if you're not a part of their life, you don't have anything to say about it. Here's the deal. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. Watch their life. As he continues, he says, the one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. The person who lives a life that is defined by sin is someone who I believe John is talking about here. In fact, in verse 4, he illustrates this person for us. In verse 4, he says that the lawless, the lawless person, that idea of lawless it's pretty self-explanatory, but they don't, they don't have any moral code. They don't think that the law matters. They just walk around and do whatever they want. They don't care who they hurt. They don't care what they do. And they're not sorry for it. That's the kind of person that John is saying, watch out. If they say something different than how they live, you watch how they live. Let no one deceive you. See, the idea is, is that Jesus, when he came here, he lived a life that was full of love for the unlovable. He had a passion for the people who needed help, a kindness for the outcast and people on the fringe of society. He lived a life marked by, time, marked by things, or excuse me, marked by time with his heavenly father, a devotion to the things of God. Friends, this is, this is what we're gonna look for. This is how we see if someone is a follower of Jesus. Now I'm gonna take a step back here because I wanna make sure everybody understands this. The life of a follower of Jesus is not defined by perfection. The life of a follower of Jesus is not defined by perfection. Here's how I know that. Because in 1 John chapter one, he says, if any of you think that you have no sin, you're a liar. Definitive, right? If any one of you are walking around thinking that you have no sin in your life like those successionists were doing. You're a liar. We all know you do things wrong. You all know I do things wrong. So what is he talking about when he says this? He says, listen, the idea is, is that your attitude towards sin has to change. See, before we knew God, we were lawless. We just did what we wanted. We did what felt good. We were driven by our feelings. But after we get saved, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he starts to break those chains he starts to whisper into your ear as you read the scripture that, hey, you know what? Maybe you should stop doing those things. Maybe you should cut that out. Maybe you should spend more time at church. Maybe you should spend more time in the scriptures. Maybe you should spend more time in prayer. And as we live this life, as, as we look around and we, we look at different people, I want us to take a step back and instead of looking outward, look inward. Look inward. I am not here to convince or unconvince anyone of their salvation. That is not my job as, as a pastor. But friends, listen to me. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible says that if you want to know if you're saved, your spirit will bear witness with God's spirit that you are a child of God. Your spirit will bear witness. What does that mean? Just ask. So here's, here's the, I'm going to give you a little testimony in my life. When I, when I was in high school, I was a believer, but I didn't live like one. I, every Sunday I would go to church, I would be sorry for everything I had done the week before. And I, I was just like, man, I cannot believe I did this again. I cannot believe I messed up again. I cannot believe I sinned again. I, I would just go through this endless battle of, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I did it again. Oh, I'm sorry. I did it again. And so I graduate high school. I go to my first year of Bible college. 
first year of training to become a pastor, and I spent most of the year thinking, I'm not saved. I'm not a child of God. When I say saved, that's what I mean. I apologize. I'm not a child of God. I spent the whole year thinking that because I kept thinking to myself, a, a child of God wouldn't do something like that. A child of God wouldn't say something like that. A child of God wouldn't look at something like that. And I kept doubting my salvation and doubting my salvation. And, and I think that when we read these verses, some of us can. Some of us can look at our life and go, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not a child of God. And I had a, a, a guy in my life, and he pulled me aside because I was really worried about it. I was going to be a counselor at camp, and I was going to tell people about Jesus. And I told my, uh, <clears throat> the guy that discipled me, I was like, hey, man, like, how am I supposed to tell people about Jesus? I don't even know if I'm a follower of his anyways. And he said this, just like the child of God has intimacy with God, the child of God also has the discipline of God. And I know that discipline sounds really negative, right? But as a good parent, we all look at our kids and we correct them. And friends, listen, if you are, in, if you are just in, in, in your heart, one of the ways that he told me to start thinking about it is, do you feel conviction over your sin? Conviction meaning, I, I want to stop, I just don't know how. Friends, the child of God, the Bible says that God loves who he disciplines. So there's a few things that you can look at in your life. Obviously, how you live your life matters. But also, as you look at other people, look at yourself and say, listen, if I'm wondering if I'm a child of God, if I don't know, I can't possibly look at every one of your situations and say yes or no. Here's the deal. At the end of this service, if you are wondering, come and talk to us. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to Glenn. Come and talk to Luke. Come and talk to Noah. Come and talk to somebody. Because listen, we want to make sure that you don't walk out of here confused because the Bible and God is not a God of confusion. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. So we could go, we could wax eloquent over the next half hour about what you do and what you don't do, how you live your life, what's good and what's not good. But here's the deal. John says this. Let me narrow this down for you, right? He says, you want to know how, how you become obvious? Just watch how they treat each other. You want to know how the, the, the child of God is obvious? Look at how they love their brothers and sisters. And I want to just, I know this is going to be a bummer for some people. But this is not the phileo word. This is the agape word. This is the word I mentioned before. This is that God-like love. And I know that for some of us, when we look at our life, we wonder, how do I know? And the Bible says, well, here's one way. Do you love people? And he gets into verse 11 and he says, for this message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And I love this. John basically says, this is nothing new. It's nothing that hasn't been said a hundred times before. But let me simplify this for you once again. You want to know how to simplify relationship with each other? Love somebody. And not just, hey, it's good to see you, but actually love them. And I, I think it's important for us to know that he commands that we show each other this type of love. He goes into a familiar scripture he actually gives, in verse 12, he actually gives the story that maybe some of you have heard. He says, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The Lord said to Cain, or excuse me, I want to stop there for just a second because I think it's important for us to go in there. In Genesis chapter 4, in Genesis chapter 4, we, we read the story of Cain and Abel. In the story of Cain and Abel, you probably have heard it. If you haven't heard it, it's the, it's, they're the sons of Adam and Eve, and it is the first recorded murder in the scripture. And Cain and Abel both bring sacrifices to God, and when they bring a sacrifice to God, God accepts Abel's and rejects Cain's sacrifice. Naturally, like two brothers, they fight about it because Cain is upset that Abel's sacrifice got accepted, but Cain's isn't. And when we look at that verse on the surface, sometimes we see that Cain brought the wrong sacrifice. But if you look in the chapter, in verse 6, we actually see that it wasn't the wrong sacrifice, it was the wrong attitude. And in verse 6, it says this, it says, Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? 
If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What was, what was God talking to Cain about? He was talking to him, like, why is your face so mad? Why, why are you coming to me with a sacrifice with this idea that you're angry? Remember what I said before. The life of a believer and the life of a follower of Jesus is not defined by a lack of sin. It's defined by our attitude toward our sin. It's defined by how you view your sin. Because culturally, friends, listen, and I fall into this too. Culturally, if it's accepted by the people around us, if the Bible says it's sin, we don't really bother to worry about it. Because it's culturally acceptable. No one's going to confront us about it. No one's going to say anything about it. But Cain here, Cain was rejected because the attitude in which he brought his sacrifice, the attitude in which he approached his sin. It's important that we remember that John uses this illustration because in verse 15 he says, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. I don't think that any one of you, hopefully, would say that I'm so angry with, a, with somebody in this congregation or another brother and sister in Christ that I would murder them. You'd say, Josh, I'm not there. I'm not going to hurt anybody. I'm not going to do anything. And I, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm glad. You're not angry enough to murder them. But are you angry enough not to love them? There's a big difference. Yeah, I'm not angry enough to do anything bad to them, but am I angry enough not to do anything good for them? Because this idea of love, a love for our brother and sister, it's a different kind of love. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's kind. It's gentle. And that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to a follower of Jesus. And, and when we come into the house of God, when we come into the presence of fellow believers, friends, this is the joy and the benefit of having a local body of believers. This is why we, we get to hang out with each other because there are similar acts of love being shown all around. In fact, I believe this church does an incredible job at loving other people, the loving their brothers and sisters. In fact, we have a whole team that's just called the care team, a whole team of people that just wait for someone to have a need and they go meet it. Because we love you. And if you have a need, let us know. We don't have unlimited resources, but man, we want to serve and we want to show this love to other people. And John does a good job at saying, hey, listen, you want to know how you love people in verse 16? He says, this is how we've come to know love. Spoiler alert, Jesus. Jesus, this is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I don't think that God is asking you to lay down your physical life. Maybe he is. But are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to look like this love that God has for us and show it to somebody else? Friends, listen, I know it sounds oversimplified, and I know some of you are sitting here thinking that, hey, Josh, listen, you don't know what that person did to me. How dare you ask me to love somebody that, that did this to me or, or forgive somebody that did this to me or do all these things? And listen, friends, I'm not asking you to. I have no idea what you've been through. I have no idea the pain and the hurt that you've been through. But God does. God does. He knows and he's experienced that same pain. And he's loved us through it. And friends, it is not an easy thing. It is not an easy thing. And, I, and what I'm asking you to do is not easy. And I'm not trying to claim it to be easy. Like I said, anybody can just talk about it. It's much harder to live. But it doesn't mean that by the power of God, we can't do it. It means that we can. It means that we can. And maybe... It's not laying down our life, but it's laying down our pride. Maybe it's not laying down our physical life, but it's laying down our arrogance, our desire to always be right for the sake of loving somebody.
He gets real practical in verse 17. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in speech, but in action and in truth. As we wrap it up, friends, listen, this is the idea. Anybody can talk. Anybody can say, I love you. But friends, what is supposed to make the follower of Jesus different is that we don't just say things, that we, we back it up. In fact, the first century church was so littered with stories of people who just who wildly loved other people. In fact, there was, there's a letter that was written by a, a leader in Rome that was trying to get rid of these Christians. They were trying, in fact, that was a derogatory term back then. It was, it, was, it was a term that was actually supposed to make fun of these little Christs. And they were trying to get rid of them, and the, the, the letter said, how are we supposed to get rid of people who do so much for the community? Everyone loves them. Because Christians were going over to leper colonies and caring for the people in leper colonies, knowing full well that they were going to get it themselves and die. How are you supposed to refute somebody? In fact, the best apologetic that we have the thing that no one can take away from us, no one can refute, is this idea of that we love each other. We should look different in this building than our relationships at our work. Not because they're sinless, but because our attitude toward those things. And because we understand this idea of love. This is a command. So as we wrap it up, I want to ask you a few questions. What would it be like if you're, what would your life be like if you truly looked at the love of God the way 1 Corinthians breaks it down? And I'm talking about God's love to us. What would it look like if you truly looked at the love of God the way God breaks it down? That when you and I sin and mess up, that we don't run from God, we don't run from our Father, from our Dad. We actually go to him because his love keeps no wrong. His love is patient. It's kind. It never ends. Does that mean we don't have any consequences? Of course not, but his love is there. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, we started in verse 4, but if we start in verse 1, it says this. If, if I speak human or angelic tongues, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to, to, to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And friends, the, the idea is this. That we can do all these things, but if we don't do them out of the attitude of love, it's like somebody taking symbols that just bang together all day. It means nothing. It means nothing. So the next step for some of you may be to lay your pride down and show this kind of love to somebody. Maybe you just didn't even know this kind of love existed. Maybe you're like, ah, I, this is the first time I've heard about this kind of sacrificial love. And if you're in here and this is the first time you've ever heard about this sacrificial love, it comes straight from the God who created the world, from the God who created you. And the Bible says that he loves you. And in John 3, 16, it says not that he just loves you, but he loves you so much that he gave. He didn't just say it, he did something about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. How much? Does he love you? He sacrificed his son for you and for me. And we mentioned earlier that Jesus lived a sinless life. That he didn't do anything wrong. And when he, when he was crucified and he died, the blood that was shed was the atonement for our sin, which was just the payment for our sin and for your sin. And the Bible says that if you accept that payment, if you accept that payment, then you could be a child of God. In Romans chapter 10, it says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth 
resulting in salvation. So friends, listen, here's the idea. That maybe some of you just need to hear the love of God, think about it, dwell on it, praise God for it. Some of you need to accept this love of God. I can't make you accept anything. I can't convince you this is all you're doing. And it's not anything that we can do ourselves in the sense that we can give more money and we can come to church more. It is strictly the sacrifice of God for you, this love for you. And if you accept that, the Bible says that you'll be saved. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And friends, listen, I'm not here to try and manipulate you into doing anything. I hope that I've expressed to you this God that has infinite love for all who would accept it. He keeps no wrong, no rights and wrongs. And, and friends, I just want everybody to experience this type of love. So whether you're joining us online, whether you're here in the room, you can accept this love for the first time right where you are. You can accept this love Simply by understanding, listen, Josh, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've messed up. I know that I've done things wrong. I know that there's things in my life that I shouldn't be doing. And the understanding that, accepting that sin and understanding that there's nothing you can do about it, the Bible says that if you believe that Jesus paid that penalty for your sin, if you believe that his death, his burial, and his resurrection was paid for your sin, and you accept that payment, the Bible says that you are now a child of God. That he has forgiven all your sins, the past sins, the current ones, and every one of them in the future. And because he is righteous, you have been made righteous before God. And if you've accepted that free gift of salvation, we want to talk to you. We'd love to rejoice with you. There's a card right in in front of you if you're in the room. You can just write it on that card, bring it to us, and we'd love to just help you understand or help you answer any questions. If you're online, you can go to citywalk.cc. You can fill that out there. But friends, whether you're accepting this love for the first time or you've heard about this love a hundred times, number one, let's marvel in it. Let's never forget. Let's never lose sight of this agape love that we have from God. And number two, we're going to sing a song. It's called Sons and Daughters. And friends, this song is a a testimony to who we are now. It's a testimony to who you are before God. You're not just some person who gets to hang out. You are a child of the Most High God. So as we sing, have that heart and that spirit behind it. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that as we sing, that you would give us this in this open heart to be able to come down here if we need to talk to somebody. Come down here and talk to Glenn or Victoria that if, we, if, if we need to just ask questions or maybe we're just nervous or maybe we just don't know what to do next. I pray that God, you would just allow people to have the boldness to take a step of faith. And God, as we sing, may this not be just another song to close out a service. May this be a song that uplifts our heart and it intertwines it with yours. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.